politics is the art of the possible. And that's true to a certain extent. But what it should be, the foundational principle of politics should be this. Politics should be the practice of principles. And when you do something that's deceptive, that's not principled and it shouldn't be respected by the public and you should be held to account for it. Welcome back to the interview podcast on the Y Milbank Podcast Network from Milbank, South Dakota. This is Craig Weinberg. YMilbank.com is our website for this studio, theinterviewpodcast.org. We'll take you right to the show page if you want to help support the show. Uh, we operate under the understanding that we produce the content, put it out there for you to use free of charge. And you decide if you get value out of it, what that value is, and you turn around and give that value back to us. And you can do that at theinterviewpodcast.org. Click on the Donate Today button, and you choose the value. And we appreciate it. Thank you so much for those that do send in support. Uh, Another way that you can support us is by sharing these episodes out to more people so that more people can listen and hear about it. Today we continue in this political season. Uh, It's the primaries in South Dakota coming up in two weeks from... This week, two weeks, June 7. Today is May 25. Uh, South Dakota Representative Steve Haugard is running for governor uh, in the primary challenge to Governor Christy Noem. We had her on just a couple episodes ago. If you want to go back and listen to that, you certainly can. Steve joined me to talk about his thoughts on governing the state. And how he might be a little bit different than what we have. Uh, So, like always, do your own research and vote. I hope you like this. Thanks for listening. We'll get right into it with Steve. Thanks a lot. Uh, Let's go back in time a little bit. Um, You are in Sioux Falls currently. Are you a native of South Dakota? Yeah, I was born and raised southwest of Madison, between Madison and Salem. Um, grew up on a farm there. We still have that farm and thankful for that. Uh, my wife grew up over by Draper, if you know where that is, east of Murdo, and grew up on a farm ranch over there. And uh, we have seven sons, one daughter. Wow. Ranging in age from about our youngest will be 25 this December and our oldest will be 40 this December. So um, fantastic. Nice work. And all, <laughs> well, all of them are married, except for our youngest, and he's getting married in September. We have 22 grandkids, and uh, we're richly blessed. Our oldest son has a trucking business. Our uh, next son farms uh, the ground I grew up on, along with about 1,500 other acres. And then our third oldest son is uh, kind of ringing the bell flipping real estate right now, so he's doing a good job. Nice. And, yeah. Uh, a, our fourth right son is fourth son is a deputy sheriff of Minneapolis County. Our fifth son is a surgical tech, and our sixth son is finishing college, going to go to law school this fall. Our daughter just graduated law school last week, and our youngest son is a police officer in Chamberlain. Wow. Uh, and you, are, are, are you in the legal profession? Yeah, I've practiced law since 1983. Wow. I told my dad, told my dad when I was in about eighth grade, I said, you know, I think I'd like to farm. <laughs> And he, he said, well, you better find something else to do. You can't make any money farming. So, <laughs> so, but so a lawyer was the answer. Up, well, so we still have the farm too, though. 
<laughs> nice. You can so just get both of them. That. That's great. Um, <clears throat> you said 81 is when you started? In 1983. 83. Um, so just about 40 years. <laughs> this might get to way off topic, but how has the the landscape of law changed over the last 40 years? Oh, it's just like the culture of the country has changed over the last 40 years. It's uh, more complicated in the sense that there's uh, far more bitterness and vitriol that goes into it sometimes with uh, just the conflicts that come into the office. Mm -hmm. um, the practice has changed in the sense that uh, we really do need to visit, revisit some of the uh, civil procedure and criminal procedure elements. And I've talked to the Chief Justice about that at both Gilbertson and then Chief Justice Jensen. We've had this conversation about how can we make some changes that would be effective and create efficiencies in the process. And so there's a lot of things we could do there. Um, law enforcement, uh, as you can see, even from this past day with the shootings down in Texas, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's so much more at stake. And so when Mike Two sons go to work and they wear a flak vest and sidearms. You know, you worry about them and you know that there's a lot of unstable people out there. Yeah. Let's talk I served about on, Well, I was just going to say, I served mm -hmm. on the Board of Mental Illness for Minnehaha County for over 25 years and probably did way over 2,000 hearings. And so you hear all the things that are going on in people's lives. And, mm -hmm. and when I first started in law practice, Minneapolis County would just have a handful of uh, mental illness petitions per week or per month. Yeah. And uh, now we're probably well over 200 per month. Now, so, do, do you think that's um, like people are actually different or is it just now more, it, it's people are more aware of it? Well, there's just a little bit more, well, significantly more awareness, but mm -hmm. uh, people are different too. The culture is degraded enough so that there's not the, the family support, there's not the community support sometimes. Uh, I think there's probably some organic issues that uh, enhance the potential for uh, autism or uh, bipolar mental illness. Uh, I, I'm fairly well convinced that uh, drug use has a significant amount to do with schizophrenia. You're talking about so, Ill illegal drug use? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So those are all issues that uh, should be addressed. You know, mm -hmm. we've got a Department of Health that actually could do some of that, but uh, we don't do too much, uh, and we really should. Is that uh, politically motivated? You think? Is it deliberate? No, is think, it a deliberate attempt to not handle it, or is it? No, just I just think too I just hard. think it's too hard, unaware, mm -hmm. not the biggest focus, a whole combination of things. We. We have a lot that could be done. Even as the state of South Dakota, we could do a significant amount to alleviate some of the problems nationwide mm -hmm. if we would just invest ourselves into some of those areas. And that's corrections, education, healthcare, social services, uh, mental health issues. You know, we've got some brilliant people in the state and we just don't always utilize them as much as we should. As you, you know, yesterday... Today is the 25th of May, 2022. Uh, yesterday, there was a school shooting in Texas. Um, you know, it's horrifying. You know, being, you know, as you, you know, you run for governor in this state, as you look at that other state, do you see things that at the state level could be, should be done uh, that might help prevent that? Is, you know, the, the national politicians, for sure, 
uh, on one side of the aisle are calling for uh, this is the time now to enact gun laws, you know, restrict things, remove, you know, make, make some kinds of guns illegal, um, you know, go into that realm. Do you see an answer that's like legislation or, I mean, it's just a bigger societal problem. I think it's just a bigger societal problem. You know, if you took away everybody's guns, for example, I suspect people would look up uh, a means by which you could buy some sodium and then maybe go blow up a room with sodium. I mean, there's all sorts of things that could be done. If somebody wants to create an evil process, they can come up with it. And I don't think necessarily uh, trying to uh, limit the types of guns or things like that, that people always work around that. I suppose if you had an entire ban nationwide of every weapon and you somehow you could sweep the landscape and you could take all the machine shops away and nobody could ever build a gun again, maybe, but then there's always the problem with having too many bats around, you know, they might pick up a baseball bat. And I think statistically there's a high uh, instance of uh, death by baseball bats across the United States. I, and I'm not joking about that. I think that's one mm -hmm. weapon of choice that people use. It'd be hard to play baseball without it, though. So you can't ban those. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Um, I think it's it's just a cultural problem. Yeah. You know, we've degraded so significantly in our culture that, as uh, as everybody knows, either you're controlled from within yourself or from without. And if you don't have the internal restraint to behave as you should in a society and love your brother as you should, um, then evil things can happen. And I'm not sure that we can regulate those things out i think we should be better neighbors and friends and more vigilant to things that are going on i was just listening to a discussion a little while ago about that very topic that there are warning signs all over the place for most people mm -hmm. either they're either they're keeping to themselves too much or they're indicating things uh, verbally or you know there's warning signs that if we were attentive we'd probably pick up on some of those. And I suspect that there's a lot of tragedies that are averted because people are picking about picking yeah. up on those things. But, but that kind of starts at the home, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure or does. It well, it starts in the home, it starts at the home. And it uh, hopefully then if you're you know, not there with family, but mm -hmm. uh, other friends, other individuals should see what's going on. But home life has decayed and degraded significantly over the past 40 years, especially. Yeah. President Biden yesterday came out and said that uh, things like this, shootings like this, don't happen in any other nation. Um, what What are your thoughts on that claim? Is, is that well, is that reality, or I mean, in, in the insinuation is it's because Americans have what has been you know touted by the right as the Second Amendment, which gives you the fr the freedom to keep and bear arms uh, unfettered at some level. Um, well, like is, I said, go ahead. Like I said, you know, you, you can't uh, you can't control someone's inner thoughts. You can recognize when things are going awry. You can provide a better cultural framework. You can do a lot of things, but evil exists all over the world. So I don't think you're going to uh, come up with a, a simple solution to the problem. It's far more complicated. And and what you see is we had a strong, cohesive culture probably all the way up through the 1940s into the 1950s. And after that, it started to uh, fray a bit. So uh, 
things changed. You end up with uh, this technology that we have today where you've got uh, worldwide, anybody can uh, be on these games and, and uh, play or participate in war games or personal assaults and all those kinds of things. I think that trains the child up in the wrong way. And so trying to legislate things like uh, take away all the guns, like I said, I think you, baseball bats then would be the next thing, and you'd keep going down the line. Um, well, in England, didn't they try to? Common theme. Yeah, in, in England, didn't they try to ban kitchen knives that were over a certain length? I think just the last few years. Yeah, and that's that yeah. sig signifies that whether you got a baseball bat or you got the kitchen <laughs> right. knife. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> do you see uh, any value in? Um, tightening up like security and you know because you know the big issue with these schools is all of them from what i can tell have a no weapon policy in place um do you think that is part of the problem or is that actually a, a good thing to continue and to maybe bol uh, bolster up some more well i think it was um school out by uh crooks crooks hartford area I think they took the approach that they would ensure that they had at least one teacher that was armed. And so that's one approach. Uh, other schools want nothing to do with that. Uh, as far as the security around the school, I just think that's tragic that that's where we're at as a society. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think most schools are pretty careful about uh, entrances and exits and ensuring that they have some degree of security the best they can. Yeah. Now we have community resource officers in most of the schools. So those, those protocols are in place. If someone wants to get past those, they can probably figure it out. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't, our kids shouldn't be living in fear. When I was growing up, uh, it was kind of the remnants of the Cold War where there was a concern about a nuclear attack. And so the kids all had that in mind that maybe there's something like that that could take place. I don't think most of us were too concerned about it because we had never seen any evidence of an attack on our country at that point. Mm -hmm. Now, now most people are well aware of school shootings. So it's quite different. Kids probably are a little more fragile as far as they're concerned about what might happen day to day yeah. in school. You know, we haven't seen on American soil, you know, at, outside of a few bigger cities that have a problem with crime. We haven't really seen what they, I mean, like what they're seeing in Ukraine and what they see in the Middle East in the you know in their streets. You know, we, we don't know anything about um, being feeling vulnerable and threatened really on a mass scale here here in America. Uh, do you think that has kind of lulled us into a sense of security? And so when we some of these crazy things pop up, it's so terrifying because it's an unknown that we've never really considered. Well, there's some of that, but then there's sometimes an overreaction, too, that uh, when tragic things happen, uh, we expect we need to have professionals come in and provide consultation and counseling and so on. Whereas the family should be the source of that consolation and the churches and, you know, your community should come alongside you and and that should be your source of reflection and guidance and that sort of thing yeah so there's sometimes we uh, overreact sometimes we underreact but um, these school shootings 
hopefully that's the last one that ever takes place. But yeah. you never know. Uh, you are a Republican in the current in the state house. Is that correct? Or in the Senate? Which one? Uh, state house. Okay. I've served, uh, served in the state house for eight years and, uh, served as speaker pro tem and then I'm speaker of the house for a couple of years. Okay. Um, what prompted you to feel like you needed to step in, um, and try to primary, uh, governor Nome? Well, I, you know, I campaigned for her in my district. And when she ran against Billy Sutton, uh, she won my district, but she did not win Minnehaha County. Mm-hmm. And I was optimistic that she would come in and make some changes. She and I discussed some of those things. We talked about uh, what needed attention and how it could be done. Um, a couple of weeks after the election, I saw the governor and uh, she indicated to me that uh, if she was going to make those changes, she knew who needed to move on and who she would keep. And uh, following that, I just didn't see any significant change. Her focus has been for four years chasing around the country, uh, running for some other office. And very few things have received the attention that they deserve in South Dakota. You know, we we had a problem with uh, corrections, for example. When I started law practice in 1983, <clears throat> excuse me. In 1983, there were about 500 inmates. Now, just before COVID, we were almost at 3,800 inmates. And that's a problem that nobody's been giving attention to for decades. And we we don't adequately fund probation before you go to the pen or parole after you leave the pen. We haven't given attention to the services that are provided because the vast majority of people going to the penitentiary or to jail will get out very soon. And you, when they get out, you'd like to ensure that uh, they've got some things in place, such as maybe their GED or their vocational training, or they've gone through drug rehab or alcohol rehab, so they at least have an opportunity for success. But we're not attentive to that because it's not popular. So instead, we come up with things like, well, everybody needs broadband in South Dakota. <laughs> well, that's great. But when we passed a bill two years ago, we allocated uh, $75 million to help the broadband companies get broadband out. Well, they were already able to access either two or three federal grants to do the same thing. When we started our session this year in January of 2022, we asked the question, okay, what have you done with the $75 million? And, and backing up a little bit, when we allocated those dollars, the industry indicated that they had already had approximately 97% cable coverage in South Dakota. Really? So whether that was a fiber optic cable or a copper cable, Mm -hmm. but there was that much coverage in South Dakota at that time, we allocated $75 million, come back a year later and ask, what have you done with it? And we're told that, well, it's, still sitting in the account, but we've spent uh, a little less than $100,000 on administration costs. Well, that was lovely. So, you know, we, we can come up with money for things like that, that didn't even happen. But instead, we should be focused on the problems that we're really responsible for. From my perspective, broadband is a cable industry uh, issue or a broadband industry issue. If they want to advance their business and bring in more customers, they can do that. And there's, for those remote areas, there are good satellite options, but 
what I've found is even in Western South Dakota, some of the most remote places, few of those companies have buried a cable all the way out to some ranches. Really? So there's, there's good broadband coverage around the state. Um, but again, our focus should be on what are we doing with corrections? What are we doing with education? What are we doing with social services? What are we doing with uh, reviewing our tax structure? So looking at the, the corrections issue, you said it jumped in 40 years from 500 to 3,800 inmates? Yes, that's right. D- does that mean there are that many more criminals that are caught? Are the, have the laws changed? What would cause such an increase? Well, a lot of it was the increased drug traffic and law and increased drug or law enforcement. So, so the majority of those inmates are drug criminals? I would say you're going to see probably 60 to 70% in that category. Um, you know, the violent offenders, mm-hmm. those people are going to, that's going to happen in every culture all the time, no matter what. Right. But with uh, the, the drug offenders and the havoc they wreak on the state, they should go through a program of some sort, be supervised, get it under control and, and quit playing cat and mouse mm-hmm. and actually make a change in people's lives because nobody wants to be a drug addict. Some people want to be a drug uh, dealer because they make a lot of money, but uh, nobody really wants to suffer the effects of drug abuse. And there are ways to help them out of that. Um, you talk about on your website a little bit, um, we need a governor who will reject the politics of fear mongering. Explain that a little bit. Well, what happened with COVID was we didn't get good uh, analysis of the virus, the vaccine, or the naturally acquired immunities. Instead, we just had this fear that somebody's going to suffer some ill effect. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a, a nasty virus for many people. But had we had decent information, which I asked the Secretary of Health for repeatedly, uh, people could have made better informed decisions. Because for some people like myself, it was it was uh, a tough deal. I got COVID in October of uh, 2020 and had a fever from 100 to 105 for 13 and a half days. Wow. And it just didn't quit. But I always, as I was going through it, I kept thinking, okay, here I am at day eight, day nine. My understanding is a two-week thing. And it turned out to be exactly that. It was Mm. 13 and a half days. Wow. But, you know, my wife, she had a different blood type uh, o positive blood was less likely to suffer those those effects, although that varied from person to person. So she had rather mild symptoms. Hmm. But that's what a Department of Health should be doing: telling people, okay, here's the virus. This is how we see it interacting with different uh, DNAs and blood types. Here's the vaccines, and this is what we know right now, whether they're approved or not approved, and what the impact has been. I think we ought to be auditing a lot of the death certificates. In fact, I asked the Secretary of Health to do that, to find out are these, when they're labeled as a COVID death, was it really COVID or was it heart disease or diabetes or something else? Because there were a lot of things that were labeled as COVID deaths that that it was a matter of convenience and opportunity for the billing agency because you could get an additional compensation if they fit into some categories of federal compensation. And that in South Dakota, you saw that? Yeah, I had, I saw that with my own clients here in the office. Why is that not um, being uh, 
sort it out. I mean, it seems like that seems like that's a lawsuit at some point, isn't it? Well, it seems to me it sure could be because, uh, you know, you have uh, good opportunity throughout the pandemic. It would have been wise, even at the executive order level from the governor's office, to say that hereby authorizing use of any uh, reasonable protocol of treatment. But instead, you didn't hear people having easy access to hydrochloroquine or ivermectin or some of the other drugs that were seemingly very successful. So, you know, we could have been, and I asked the governor this back in September of 2021, just you know, not that many months ago, please call us into special session. We'd be the first state in the nation to actually gather information about the virus and the vaccine. And I indicated in my letter that I truly did not know what direction the legislature would go with that issue, mm-hmm. but at least we'd gather the information and be doing a service to the people. And I heard nothing back from the governor's office. Did you uh, think her her handling of the state over the last couple of years regarding COVID and, you know, around the country, governors were, you know, mandating people stay home, shutting down businesses, doing a lot of stuff that, that really had direct impact on people's lives. Um, did you think that uh, Governor Nome did the right thing in how she approached South Dakota? Well, COVID was hitting the middle of March, March of 2020. Mm -hmm. I I remember the last day we were in regular session, we were arguing a little bit about the budget issues. And at that same time, I remember sitting in the governor's conference room having this conversation. I said, this is ridiculous. We're spending every dime out of our budget this year. And here today, the day we were talking, I said, today the stock market is in free fall because of COVID. And it truly was. We came back two weeks later and we were met with uh, several bills that the governor was bringing forward that would have closed the state down. She wanted to grant the authority to the mayors and the county commissioners to do whatever they wanted to do for emergency powers in regard to this quote unquote pandemic in their own jurisdictions. Had we allowed those bills to pass, we would have been shut down tight as a drum and those laws would have been in place until the following July 1st. She also had a bill that would have given all the authority to the Secretary of Health to do whatever she determined was necessary to control the pandemic. So on that day, I got to the Capitol like usual at about six in the morning, but I gaveled in at 11 a.m. And for that first 45 minutes or so, I explained why we were meeting remotely because probably a fourth or a third of the House members were in the chamber pursuant to the Constitution. And I'm I think just about the same numbers probably in the Senate. And the Constitution requires that we convene at the seat of government. Well, I explained that had there been a nuclear attack, for example, we would would not be able to meet here. So we still had the responsibility and the authority to meet. So I explained all that for the first period of time. But I gaveled in at 11 a.m. We considered the bills that came to the House, and then we considered the bills that went through the Senate. And we didn't gavel out, or I didn't gavel out until 3.40 a.m. the next morning, approximately 17 hours later. And it was because we had to kill all those bills. And had we not stopped those bills, South Dakota would have been a far different uh, landscape as far as patchwork quilt of jurisdiction shutting down here and shutting down there. On the heels of that, you know, we stopped all the bills. Um, Sadly, two of the senators came back to the Capitol that night drunk, 
and that complicated our life. But we got things done that night. And on the heels of that, within six days, the governor issued executive orders ordering that all South Dakotans shall follow the CDC guidelines. That's executive order 2020-12. And you can look that up on the Secretary of State's website. And it's uh, just type in South Dakota Secretary of State executive orders, and you'll see those orders. So 2020-12 was statewide order. Then 2020, I think it's dash 15, was the order granting the Secretary of Health full authority to do whatever she needed to do to control the pandemic. So, sorry, I want to pause for just a second. So, words matter in law, correct? You and as they a lawyer. Matter. So, yes. what is the difference between like why is shall used in these things? What what does that mean? Is, is that a directive well, when it's used? Yeah. So prior to our executor prior to our veto day, March 30th, and bleeding mm -hmm. into March 31st, the governor had issued a, a similar executive order that said all South Dakotans should follow CDC guidelines. Mm -hmm. Following the, the stopping of those bills, then the governor issued that same order, but changed the word from should to shall. And it said all South Dakotans shall, all South Dakota businesses shall, mm -hmm. all for-profit and not-for-profit businesses shall. In fact, it says all businesses who encourage public gatherings shall either suspend or modify their business practices. So that's what set the tone for businesses closing in South Dakota. And too many people forget schools were closed here, churches were closed here, businesses were closed here. Mm -hmm. we, weren't, we weren't open the whole time. And then Executive Order 2020-18, if you pull that up and take a look at it, you'll see that that executive order mandated, it says on the second page, this order is mandatory for Lincoln and Minneapolis counties. Anyone over 65 or suffering from any vulnerable conditions, collectively vulnerable individuals, shall stay at home. So when the governor says that she never mandated anything, that's patently false. When she says she trusted her people, that's not true. And so when we received that boatload of money, April 10, we received $625 million from the federal government. And April 15 of that year, we received the other $625 million. Mm -hmm. That money was there with the intended purpose to bridge the gap for businesses that were going to be on the ropes because they were closed. And so we were told we would have a special session to handle that, but it never happened. It never happened. And it never happened. And and finally, I was able to get through the executive board. It's on the executive board at that time. I uh, got through the uh, opportunity to have quote unquote listening sessions. And those listening sessions were held across the state so that people can come and express their concerns and what their problems were associated with this close or closures and the pandemic. And then finally, the governor ordered that we would have a special session, but that was not until October. And by that time, the, the terms of the special session were simply this. It was to consider a concurrent resolution authorizing the executive to expend the money. And that wasn't what we needed. We needed to figure out the specifics earlier, bridge the gap, and quit making this uh, insider trading kind of a situation where if you knew somebody who knew somebody about how to apply for these funds, you're more likely to get them. 
because it was left within the discretion of uh, a smaller group of people to make those choices. And they farmed some of that out, but they farmed it out for, you know, with parameters that still the governor's office had some control over. Mm -hmm. Well, I know, I mean, I'm a small business owner in South Dakota and I, I design and photograph things. It's my, that's a photographer. Um, None of my work is produced like actual, the production is in South Dakota. It's all in other states. And so we were directly affected by those states' decisions to stop their businesses from operating. So we saw direct impact, a lot of it, because we just couldn't get product anymore. And then, yeah. you know, we, we did lose some some local business when schools to shut down and things like that. But um, it well, seemed like the, the overall 30,000-foot view South Dakota fared better than other states. Is that proper to think that, or is that? I don't just... think we were, I don't think we were appreciably different from 45 other states. Hmm. And uh, the real blessing that we had was that we had Mount Rushmore. And people that would normally fly to Europe on vacation probably <laughs> drove to South Dakota. Yeah. And so we had the benefit of tourism and we always have a strong tourism trade. Mm -hmm. That's great. And we've got the parks and we've got the opportunities to be outside. But as you recall, there was an awful lot of masks that were floating around here, too. It wasn't like that was not considered in South Dakota. There were lots of places where you had to mask up. Yeah. And businesses, so all the government offices, they were putting up plexiglass like it was going out of style. And so you had the same general issues when the political winds started to shift nationwide. That's when you saw the governor claiming credit for keeping the state open. But she ordered contact tracing. And... In fact, that was going on all the way through the fall of 2020, and I think it continued on to be encouraged after that. She had the National Guard uh, making contact tracing calls, and they made over a quarter of a million phone calls contact tracing. So when you say, I trusted my people, I was never hands-on, I was always hands-off, that just ain't so. You can say it over and over again, but it just isn't true. So we had the similar issues. Businesses, though, like you know, all across the state, there were restaurants that shuttered their doors and they they just stopped for a time. The drive-up restaurants, you know, they had the opportunity to do that at least, so they could maintain some revenue flow. And some of them found that, gee, I can't get decent employees anyway, so this worked out pretty well. So some businesses fared well. A lot of them. You had to close up the health clubs, for example, they weren't doing anything. They were closed. And finally they got back to business, but those were the kinds of places that suffered. Like I say, the tourism probably saved us in large part, but remember too, that we only put up 40% of our own budget in South Dakota. 60% is all federal money. And this, on a regular basis? On a regular basis. And this past year, South Dakota, the average state in the nation in the past year, received five times as much federal money as in a normal year. South Dakota was the largest recipient per capita. We received 8.3 times as much federal money as a normal year. So when we beat our chest and say we did so well, well, inflation was running at probably anywhere from 8 to 14 percent. 
that accounts for additional revenue. And the, the federal dollars that were flooding into the state, that accounts for a lot of the prosperity, supposed prosperity. But the average person, what they end up doing, paying twice as much for the gasoline, half again as much for their food. And a lot of them lost their jobs because the governor didn't issue any protection for uh, discrimination in regard to the vaccine. And that should have been done. I knew of several people that were in the guards that uh, they were asking for some kind of protection, but they weren't getting it. And ultimately, when in hindsight, you look back and realize, yep, if they would have just had some sort of uh, legal protection, whether it's through the state legislature or through an executive order of the governor's office, they potentially could have uh, recovered their pensions. Mm. But I knew a lot of people that just simply within three to five years of retirement, they chose not to get the, the vaccine and they gave up their pensions. And that shouldn't have happened. Speaking of vaccines, is it a, would it ever be appropriate or why shouldn't the government mandate um, the COVID vaccine just like they mandate? Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of schools, just like they mandate all the others that are required to enter public education. Well, I think those are all fairly questionable. Uh, and I, it's in part because I was raised in a different age and era, I guess. You know, when I was growing up, everybody got measles and every, everybody got mumps and everybody got chicken pox. Mm -hmm. And now there's such a fear of any of those things that uh, we go overboard, I think, with the vaccines and especially vaccines that are not tried and true. You know, a lot of those are fairly well established that uh, you know what the ultimate outcome is going to be if you take a, a measles vaccine or a mumps or rubella or some of those. Those have a long enough track record, you know, the, the efficacy of those things. But with these vaccines for COVID, they were untested and the, the uh, outcomes, the, the statistical analysis of, you know, blood clotting or miscarriage and those kinds of things. Those are not well known. And I think most everybody knows someone who likely received a vaccine and likely that's the cause of their blood clots or their heart attack. But a, the official word from the CDC is that that is not the case. So who are we supposed to believe at this point? Because, I mean, it, if we look at those executive orders that were signed in South Dakota, uh, it makes very clear that the World Health Organization is placed on this, you know, pedestal of, of being of truth, scientific health truth. The, U, the CDC, same thing. Uh, in this one executive order I'm reading, it mentions them yeah. specifically as because they've done this, now we're gonna, we need to take it seriously. Um, is that appropriate? Should, I mean, are, are they legitimate still? I think with all of that, that information is something you roll out to the public and simply say, here's food for thought. And then you order your Department of Health, you get on top of this, you contact people worldwide, and you find out what's happening in Norway, Sweden, uh, China, as much as you can, uh, find out what they're doing in uh, uh, India. They were, there were a number of places where there were protocols that were being tested, and they found some benefits. And you could have reached out all over the world uh, just to gather information and then continue to provide that information to the public and let the public make those decisions. 
But when you come along and you dictate that someone's going to inject something and you really don't know what the ultimate long-term effects are going to be, shame on you. So, you know, I, after we killed those bills, just reminded mm -hmm. me, after we killed those bills, the next day I got, uh, I, along with a lot of other people, got nasty emails from some of those people that wanted that authority to make those decisions and we're going to blame us for ultimately what's going to happen it's going to be on you because you stopped these bills well in an emergent situation there's very few people that should be exercising authority and even in that one where the governor had that authority and we were trying to make sure it was just with the governor even with that from the time you issue an executive order, you better be calling the legislature into special session to decide if this makes sense or how we're going to handle this going forward. Should a governor have that kind of of power to to, to kind of t jump in quick, take over uh, a state like that? I asked Scott Jensen, uh, candidate for governor in Minnesota, uh, a couple months ago, I had him on, and that same question about Minnesota. Is there an appropriate amount of power that is given to a governor for things like this? Well, I appreciate Scott Jensen. He's a bright guy. We've had good conversations and his medical background makes it a, a lot easier for him to analyze that data. I do think a governor should have that, but in a very restricted way. Wants that, to, if there's an emergent situation, for example, say there's a a nuclear blast in Omaha and it's drifting north across South Dakota, I think a governor should be able to address that and roll out the National Guard and roll out local uh, first responders and get things under control. But I also think that there needs to be a much shorter time frame on that exercise of executive authority. Uh, our laws for emergent powers like that are really based on the Cold War of the 1950s or into the 1960s. I think they're, I think the statutes typically are referenced in 1959. And that was a far different landscape. They, they talked in general terms about all sorts of things, including potential for uh, some sort of biological weapons. But we can call ourselves into special session uh, on a moment's notice almost, and we should for those types of things. It's not like we have to saddle up and ride to pier. Mm -hmm. We can zoom in and have the conversation pretty quickly. What did the COVID, the pandemic response reveal about our education system? I think what it reveals is it uh, reveals that people are extremely compliant uh, when they're fearful. And it's easy to engender fear when you don't give very much information. If you're the sole control of the source of information, uh, data, analysis, uh, all those things, then uh, you can shape the outcome that you want. And that's why I say we should have been gathering information, pouring it out there for the public to discern whether or not they should be protected with the vaccine or if they should do something else to maintain their, their health or a whole variety of things but we did not do it. And like I say, we were probably the same as the majority of states. We uh, kind of worried, hunkered down, and, and then didn't uh, provide the information that people really needed. So it was unfortunate. It was, it was an interesting 
exercise worldwide to see how the world would respond. And I think, sadly, the world responded with a larger amount of fear and a willingness to surrender their personal liberties. Was that, I mean, I, I've asked a few other people that too. It, it seemed really quick that the public, especially the American citizen, just laid down and said, yes, tell me, tell me to wash my hands because I clearly don't know that. Um, right. There was one acquaintance of mine that actually is, I think, in the Sioux Falls area, um, was posting, ranting, actually, about the fact that Governor Nome had not locked down the borders of South Dakota because she, this person that in down in Sioux Falls, um, needed to be told what to do. She needed leaders to tell her what to do because she just needed that. And to me, that... That's not a proper way to live if you need an elected official to tell you whether you can go outside or not. Well, if you if you look at Executive Order 2020-18, you could pull that one up, and you'll see that it's mandatory that anyone over 65, vulnerable individuals, shall stay at home. And then go down to the next paragraph below that, and it says, in addition, individuals under this order shall wash their hands often. Well, you're locked in your house. Now you're told that you have to wash your hands often as well. So don't just take a long nap. You got to get up and wash your hands again. So we, we, had, a, we had a lot of issues there and, and those things should have never passed. That should, I mean, that should, should have never been issued. That's an executive order that carries the force and effect of law. Had the governor wanted to impose uh, some sort of a criminal sanction along with it or a, a civil penalty or whatever it might be, she could have. Or she could have just ordered enforcement via the National Guard or law enforcement. Thankfully, nobody in the nation did that. I don't think they even did that in New York City, probably, but it got close. Yeah, I, you know, it, probably, it certainly could have been the case. So... Um, emergency emergency yeah. power should have been revisited this year. We didn't have the political will to do it, so it didn't happen. You mean to, because are, are we, we're not still under an emergency order, are we, in South well, Dakota? No, no, but uh, we should have revisited the emergency powers of the governor and the legislature. Those things should have been a discussion, because most states will have a, like a 30-day window of oversight. So if an emergency mm-hmm. power, if an executive order is issued, legislature needs to be involved in either approving that and continuing it or stopping it. Um, what would you do differently day one that would be different? Uh, a, a governor Howgard does what on day one? I would, I would be in South Dakota as opposed to campaigning all across the United States. I would be, uh, you know, I've been asked the question about what's your top three priorities. And two things we, we are doing very, very well in the state of South Dakota. One is tourism. And Secretary Hagan does a great job with that. The other is the state retirement program. And Matt Clark in Sioux Falls has done a phenomenal job with the state retirement program. Beyond that, all the other agencies need attention as far as uh, long-term policy planning, because we just don't do that. We end up with uh, 
governors that are either at four years or eight years. And sometimes you can't tell if there was ever a policy associated with those agencies. The legislature, we don't get involved in policy planning because we're rotating through so quickly and we have uh, term limits that we really don't, don't have much of an impact on policy. But what I would do is each one of those agencies would need to have a thorough review immediately. And probably the first thing I would do, try to get some relief to people on their real estate tax that you know the, the valuations have spiked which did not do us any good unless you're selling your property right so it was great for farm prices if you're ready to sell if you're not all you did was you got saddled with more real estate tax if your house if you wanted to sell it that was great or you just got hung with more real estate tax that hasn't been re our tax structure in south dakota really hasn't been revisited for almost 50 years because back in uh, like 76, I think, is when we finally got rid of the personal property tax. And that was a tax where you would list everything that you own, personal property. How many radios do you have? How many chairs? Are you kidding? You Furniture? Yeah, everything was listed. And you'd list how many cattle you've got, how many tractors you've got. You'd take some sort of a percent times that total value. Who assigns the value to that? I mean, who, who determines that value? Is there a big book you had to go no. through? No, it was called a liar's tax ultimately because <laughs> exactly as as they said, you know, nobody in Minneapolis County owned a diamond ring. Oh no. So so it was a it was a voluntary assessment of your personal property value and then you'd send in some fractional percent of that. Was that in addition that, to a sales tax? Yeah, that was in addition to sales tax. That was in addition to real estate tax. It was um it was just it didn't work. And then after that, our sales tax sales tax started to creep up and the real estate tax started to creep up. And uh, one thing that we do right in South Dakota, we're one of only about six or seven states that we do not have an income tax. Mm -hmm. And we're thankful for that. But when you start comparing some of these other taxes, it's, pretty it's soon almost it stacks up. Mm -hmm. Well, you look at us, we've got a 4.5% state sales tax, 2% municipal tax, 2% excise tax, 1% tourism tax, a wheel tax, severance tax, and you go down the list of 142 boards and commissions with their associated fees, and then exorbitant real estate taxes, and bank franchise fees, and there's all sorts of other uh, revenue sources that we rely on, and we're the third most dependent state in the nation on gambling. We used to be second. Now we're now we're third. <laughs> wow. Well, we're going so, we're going the right way, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But sort of. you know, we've we've chosen some poor revenue sources, and then like this session, where uh, at the end of the session we were looking for some kind of tax relief, we proposed bills that would have uh, done away with the sales tax on food, which is the most regressive tax you yeah. can find. Yeah, and that got killed. Why? Because uh, governor didn't support it. And you, we tried to get the half penny sales tax reduced. Yeah, that, what, was didn't that get implemented with a sunset? No, it didn't have a sunset. Well, well it had it, oh, they they campaigned on a sunset. Oh, don't worry, we'll do it as long, until we get to this point. Right, it had an implied sunset of once we receive X number of dollars uh -huh. in in internet revenues, then it'll go away. Well, it was not well defined. It was put on at the last minute to get that thing to pass, and it passed by just one or two votes. And it was it was just uh, it, there was a deal cut over the weekend prior to that bill passing in 2016 between uh, 
couple of uh, a couple of representatives from anyway, a couple of representatives <laughs> that if the amendment went on that would include vocational teachers, then that one person would vote for it. And so the, that amendment went on the bill. It passed. Uh, there were a couple other people that flipped over the weekend because they were so pressed upon by their uh, by family and friends and and others that uh, it was supposed to be this dramatic increase in teacher pay. And ultimately, it, like always, it goes into the general fund and it gets lost. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the problems back then even was the concern that I had that. Uh, we were, we were focused solely on teacher pay, which is okay, because there were some districts that were abusing that. There was, for example, in, I think it was Aberdeen, their average teacher pay was 31.5. And the goal was to make it 48.5. Wow. So they were, way off, they were way off the mark. But they also had, I think, $11 million sitting in their reserves. They could have accessed somewhere around $6 million of that, but they chose not to. So there was a reason to address teacher pay, but at the same time as we were trying to get teacher pay up to 48.5, the average sheriff's deputy in, in the United States was making 41.5. And they were working 12 months a year wearing a flak vest. Mm-hmm. So all those things need to be laid out on the table, do an analysis of where the, the compensation level should be, and then let's move in that direction. Uh, another example that's unfortunate is uh, just comparing like Two sessions ago, I sponsored a bill to increase judge pay because we couldn't get uh, attorneys to apply for judge positions in Minneapolis County. And so we increased the judge pay by, I don't think it was 6000 or something or 8000 Enough so at least it looks a little bit more interesting. But our chief justice at the time was making $148,000. So all the five judges on the Supreme Court make the same, they're $148,000. Meanwhile, that same year, uh, Barry Dunn up at SDSU and Sheila Gestering down at USD, presidents of those two universities, they were making a base pay of not 148, but 391, a quarter of a million dollars more. And I don't think the average South Dakotan would think that makes any sense. You know, they can argue that that's competitive nationwide. Well, I don't care. We're talking about the Supreme Court judge compared to a university president, a quarter of a million dollars more for the university president. And I understand their their duty is more of a fundraiser, a cheerleader for the universities at times. But you've got to apply some sense to these things, too. Has university education changed for the good or the worse, good or bad, over the last 50 years? Well, you know, some of the things like uh, SDSU at the land-grant college, so there's a whole different uh, responsibility with that. And the focus there should be that you're focused on agriculture and engineering and those types of things. So that's a bit different. But as far as the course of education, uh, there's been a, a lot of pressure for the past century to shift and to have political influences there at the university level that's I think highly inconsistent with the constitutional representative republic. Uh, an example was uh, my daughter just graduated from law school, like I said, a week or two ago. And uh, I saw one of her classes in constitutional law. And 
the part that I saw was just the professor's summary of what he had been talking about throughout the rest of the class. And his comment was, and that's how the founding fathers were able to maintain their white supremacy. Wow. And that's in our own universities here in South Dakota. Mm. And so the book was probably fine. You know, we talk about critical race theory. The book was probably fine, but the professor just had a skewed perspective on the past. And I'm thankful my daughter, she, uh, we homeschooled her and she uh, had a solid understanding of the, the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and all the foundations of law. So she was able to defend herself and understand that some of what she was being taught wasn't uh, what just wasn't so. But uh, not everybody's in that camp. And, and so we had to have uh, teachers at the K-12 level and the university level that respect uh, the culture and heritage of the United States and support that. But Is, we have some problems there. Should uh, college be a requirement for getting a decent job? <laughs> no, no. It's like I told my dad when I was in grade school, I wish I could, or I wanted to farm. And he said, you got to find something else to do. Can't make money farming. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, the idea that uh, honest labor uh, is looked down upon, that should never be. Mm-hmm. There's so many, and especially right now, you look at the vocational schools that uh, I don't think is responsibility of the state, but uh, the ones we have, they're doing a great job. And a lot of those students coming out of there, they don't even have to finish their entire coursework. They've already got a right. job and they've got a good paying job. Mm-hmm. So those are opportunities, and, and that comes with a whole lot less stress sometimes when uh, you're assigned a duty and you can do it well and you enjoy it. When you're done with the day, that's the end of that issue. So the college degree doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to excel. Yeah, <laughs> this is a weird thought, but um, why does South Dakota mandate a front license plate? And can we stop that? <laughs> Well, I think we ought to stop that. I don't personally like having a front license plate. I don't like having a license plate, if I'm honest about it. Yeah. But well, that's I, another one of those another one of those things. We uh, we have licensing fees for anything and everything, and they're far too expensive, and that needs attention as well. But yeah, I, I don't like front license plates because it just well, takes away from the appearance of the car. Totally. The argument is always, well, you need to be able to be identified from the front or the back, which. Uh, that's up for debate, but I've been in Florida in the last three months. I was in Florida, Texas, and 12 other states. Um, Florida does not require it on the front. I don't think Texas does. Kansas does not. So big populous states can do it. Why not South Dakota? <laughs> well, you got to have that political will. And sometimes <laughs> I know it's something need, silly, but... Sometimes you just need to tell the Department of Public Safety... Uh, we're not going to do it. So, well, you know what? <laughs> governor would be Governor Haugard. Come on. Rule one <laughs> get rid of the yeah. front plate. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Agenda that number one. one. No, okay, well, fine. <laughs> I don't think that'd be day one, but it'd probably be in the first session. <laughs> no, that's. We've had lots of license plate bills. Usually it's Larry Zickman that brings, brings the license plate, bill, plate bills because he. Uh, likes to make sure that veterans have those opportunities and Jim Stalzer, I think likewise. Mm-hmm. And, and there's some car clubs in South Dakota that they don't want to have to drill through yeah. their front. Totally, yeah. to, mm-hmm. So there's, <laughs> there's a good reason for it. Yeah. On a lighter note, uh, when you are not reading, pouring over materials or dealing with state uh, business, what do you do for fun? 
Well, law practice, and we've, <laughs> we've got, uh, like I said, eight kids and 22 grandkids, so there's plenty to do with everybody and lots you, of things to go to. And you hunt? I like to. I don't get enough time to do it. We still have an opportunity to go out to the farm and hunt, but boy, there haven't been very many pheasants in the past few years. I see, you know, driving across the state, there is a good pheasant population this year. I've seen even just day before yesterday driving out to rapid uh, coyotes running across the road. So we got way too many coyotes. And uh, I think I was up at Gettysburg or someplace and, and saw a fox running across the road. So, you know, we've got a lot of wildlife. We've got a lot of opportunity. We uh, need to manage the game a little better. Probably we need to get rid of more coyotes. Mm-hmm. Got, you know, those are prevalent all across the state. When I was growing up uh, here in Eastern South Dakota, I never saw a coyote, never heard a coyote, uh, but we had jackrabbits every place. Now we don't have jackrabbits. We got lots of coyotes and we got a low pheasant population around here. So, you know, I love to hunt, love to fish. It's great. We got great opportunities there. You're not talking about and, the college rivalry, correct? What's that? You're not talking no, about the yeah. college rivalry. No, 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 no. <laughs> And I appreciate those bumper stickers that say uh, work is people. For people who do not know how to fish, <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, where can people find out more about you uh, and your campaign and your bid for governor? Well, they can go to uh, stevehaugard.com. That's S T E V E H A U G A A R D.com or dakotatruth.com. Dakotatruth.com. And that's where we've got some more information about the bills that were actually. Uh, Proposed by the governor, <clears throat> the, the executive orders that were issued, the veto of the girls sports bill. We didn't even talk about that one. And that was a very deceptive couple of executive orders that came out following that veto that uh, I confronted the governor's attorney on that. And he just smiled and shrugged. So that was not uh, not handled as it should have been. So uh, give us a brief rundown of what that bill said and what the reasoning behind it for well, the, that was in 2021. Mm-hmm. It was the uh, bill that was brought because people in South Dakota were going to the circuit court, getting their birth certificates changed from male to female or female to male. So there was a real issue going on. We wanted to address it. And we wanted to say that if you're going to participate in sports, then you should have uh, that clearly identified either at or before the time of birth. And that's what that bill said. So your genetic testing at or before the time of birth. The bill was vetoed, passed through both the House and the Senate, apparently to the surprise of the governor. It was vetoed by the governor, and then she issued out two executive orders. And you can find those on South Dakota Secretary of State's website, executive orders for 2021-05 and-06. So executive order number five said this. It said, uh, and I don't have it in front of me, but it said uh, only girls based on their biological sex as reflected on their birth certificate, shall participate in girls' sports. Well, that was the status quo. That was the problem. You could change your birth certificate. So that said nothing more than what was already going on. Mm. And and the Chamber of Commerce was okay with that one. They put the pressure on the governor to veto the bill, but they were okay with that executive order. And they were also okay with the second one or the next one, executive order number six for 2021. And that was for collegiate sports. And that one said, only females based on their biological sex as reflected on their birth certificate issued at the time of birth. So that was good. 
But the next word was should. And should doesn't mean anything. Mm. That's an opinion. It's just a- simply an opinion. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't an executive order. It was an executive opinion. That's why I confronted her attorney and I said that they were absolutely worthless. And that was his response is to smile and shrug. And basically uh, they got by with uh, some sleight of hand and that did not serve the public well. So then in that following year, the political wind shifted. The NCAA realized they can't uh, dictate quite that much. And so all of a sudden, then the governor wants to bring a bill. She essentially commandeered somebody else's bill and and got that passed. So in the world of politics, is that just playing the game properly? What she well, did? Here's, here's the thing of it. Uh, I, I've heard the lieutenant governor and others say this that politics is the art of the possible. And that's true to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But what it should be, the foundational principle of politics should be this. Politics should be the practice of principles. And when you do something that's deceptive, that's not principled, and it shouldn't be respected by the public, and you should be held to account for it. And we could change all this in politics. You don't have to uh, use the word politics as though it's a dirty word. It should be more that uh, kids look up to people that are in public office and they respect them because these are public servants. They're doing the best they can for the people that they serve. And that too oftentimes is not the case. And it needs to change and it sure could. It could change with the next election. So, you know, I would I would advocate just what the governor campaigned on, transparency. And that's the last thing we've seen with the governor is transparency. And that is one of the foremost things that need to take place so that the public, again, respects the people that are serving in public office. How much of the, I'll call it marketing, some would call it propaganda, uh, that comes out of a, a an elected official like that in, in a government role uh, is orchestrated by other people other than the office holder? Office holder is the one that's ultimately responsible. If that's the campaigns they want to run, shame on them. And they should be found out and held accountable. And, uh, you know, when I, anything has come out from my campaign, I've been trying to try to be, be very careful because I'm an attorney. I care about words. And as you said, as we, as we started, words make a difference. Words matter. And anything that comes out should be factual and like all of the bills I've voted on over the past years, hundreds, thousands of bills or thousands of votes, all those, I can defend my, uh, my vote on each one of them and explain why. And every one of us should be in that position to do so. Yeah. So I, I, would, I would really like for kids and citizens, you know, adult citizens to, to actually be able to look up to those that serve in public office and say they're doing a, a good job or at least the mm-hmm. best job they can do and i trust them yeah trust well, is yeah. huge well, one of my mantras that i try to <laughs> beat into everyone that i come in contact with that will listen is this idea that you should do your own research on elected people and vote absolutely because it's necessary i think it's our duty but you need to do your own research on these people and then come to your own conclusions rather than just listening to a few talking points uh, and that's yeah. that's one of the reasons that I reached out to you, and I've got several other people lined up too for in the next week, because it's so important, I think, to have this I conversation think, where we can actually talk through this stuff. And so I really appreciate your time and you taking the doing this with me. It's fantastic. 
Well, and you got to be careful too. You look at those voting records and sometimes it tells you the whole story. Sometimes you need a little bit of a backstory on some Mm -hmm. of those, but uh, it helps to have the conversation about specific bills. You know, if, if there's a hot button bill, talk to that legislator and say, why did you vote for it? Or why did Mm -hmm. you vote against it? And explain to me the exact words because I can read them right here on the legislative website. Now tell me why this wasn't good or why it was. Yeah. All right. So we'll get into one issue and then I'll, I'll let you go and we'll do part two another time down the road. Um, Sounds good. uh, Amendment C is up on the ballot in a couple of weeks. Um, and that is a constitutional amendment. Um, Explain that and where you where do you stand on it? Well, when you where I stand on it is I support passing uh, Amendment C. And the history of uh, ballot measures really goes back to South Dakota across the United States. I think South Dakota might have been the first state in the nation to allow for ballot measures where the the you exercise something of a direct democracy. And my, I should research this better, but my general understanding is there is a concern about the, the either too much uh, power through the railroads or not enough. But anyway, ballot measures became a thing in 1896, I believe, in South Dakota. We became a state in 1889. So then ballot measures came along. And constitutional amendments did not come along as ballot measures until the 1980s or 1990s. Hmm. So they're a rather recent invention. And this issue that's on the ballot right now <clears throat> really, for the most part, revolves around whether or not we could potentially stop the expansion of Medicaid as a ballot measure. And what you've seen with these ballot measures, like the two marijuana ones, it doesn't matter which side of the issue you were on on those two ballot measures. Those two ballot measures were each, if you would have printed them out, were each well over 20 pages each. And when we consider bills, we'll argue about a paragraph or a couple <laughs> of words in a paragraph. But those were vast uh, expansions of, uh, of law and one was a constitutional issue. So those were huge. With this particular uh, Amendment C, it at least brings the threshold of voter support up to that 60% yeah, 60 level. In, in the House and the Senate, if we're going to pass a bill, a spending bill, it's got to be a two-thirds majority. And so that's far past 60%. But with these, uh, it was to at least make it clear that the public had some pretty good understanding of the issue that's going to be before them if it's going to spend money. So shouldn't then that same threshold be applied to actually amending the Constitution? Because it isn't it if just a straight up majority yeah, right. to to amend the constitution like this bill would do, and so yeah, to right. amend the constitution, fifty percent, fifty one percent, or fifty percent plus plus one, but to for this bill that is now becomes part of the constitution, it's now sixty, what is it two thirds? No, just be sixty percent. Sixty percent. So then to yeah. to pull that back out, theoretically, you could have just a majority again, amend the and, constitution and, again. Correct. Correct. And just a majority of those people that actually show up to vote, it's not a majority of the citizens of South Dakota. It's just a majority of the people that show up to vote. <clears throat> so, you know, an example is a few years ago, this is probably typical of school board elections in uh, Sioux Falls, the school board election drew a total of 
four percent or four point one percent of the voters. <laughs> That's it, really. That was it. <laughs> wow. And so, so the individuals getting elected at that time, uh, if they had a majority of that four percent that showed up to vote, they won. So they could have won with a two point one or two point two percent. Right. Yeah. And they're responsible for a third of a billion dollar budget and 24,000 students. So it's huge. So it, is, that so a, is that a communication breakdown that you don't have that much interest? Because obviously there's more than 4% of the population that sends their kids there. Yeah. Well, it's a breakdown of communication, but it's also an apathy that people just don't seem to care. They, they're satisfied with cruise control and let somebody else do it. Now, if this ballot measure... I think those, I, I think we ought to be moving far away from ballot measures. Because hmm. like I said, that's a direct democracy. And we're a, here's the structure of our government. We're called a democracy. But the only part of us that's a democracy is when you go to the polls to vote for your elected to representative. Elect you, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and that's when the democracy ends and the constitutional representative republic begins. Hmm. So we are one nation as a republic. And uh, we need to understand that better. The idea of mob rule isn't a good thing. And so the direct democracy, if everybody was well-informed, that'd be one thing. But when you're relying on 30-second uh, TV spots, right. yeah. that's not where you want to be. Yeah. So, so anyway, Amendment C, I would say vote yes on it, just in the sense that you need to have a higher standard if you're going to spend dollars like this. Would it be something that you would support to uh, create a constitutional amendment that would actually remove the entire ballot measure piece? I think uh, I think what I would do is I would have that conversation statewide, just like I would with education, healthcare, social services, corrections, access, all those things. Mm -hmm. So the public is best informed, and then let that gel for a year or two, and let the public decide: is this the right direction to go? Instead of what I see with a lot of these, it's more of an ambush. Hmm. All of a sudden, there's information thrown out there. Let's vote on it. Let's right. be done. Yeah. But I think if the public was supportive of it and they understood how the, the legislative process worked, I think you, you'd probably see them move in that direction or at least raise the threshold for passing some of those things. Because, you know, with uh, anything, like I said, whether it's marijuana or it's uh, an abortion ban or whatever it might be, Whoever shows up to vote, they're the ones that make the decisions. And if you've got a, vote, a very low voter turnout, well, you've got the opinions of some people, but not, mm -hmm. not as many as you'd like. Yeah. So maybe the, the effort needs to be made in figuring out how to modernize our communication to get it out to more people. Well, we've got great modern communication. It's just too many times the information is distorted. And in my situation, the governor refuses to debate me. But she can't defend these executive orders and, and what actually took place in 2020. So, and there just hasn't been anything done with corrections, for example. She came down and fired the warden. Well, that wasn't the solution to the problem. You needed to fund the staff so that you'd keep staff from turning over so dramatically. And you need to fund probation and parole. There were a lot of issues that needed attention, but they haven't gotten the attention. Why are we not retaining uh, profits in the state for both livestock and grain. You know, we don't process our own cattle here even. You know, in South Dakota, you have about 4 million head of beef cattle. And every year, about a million of those are going to go someplace. 
And how many do you suppose we process in South Dakota? I'll bet it's not 30,000. Why is and that? So all, we don't have the facility set up. We've not encouraged it. We've been looking the other direction. We let big companies, uh, four big corporate entities mm -hmm. run the show. And we should have been working hard to see the transition when uh, all the way from the 60s and 70s on forward, because those profits are lost forever. And when I talk to, for example, well, whether it's farmers or ranchers, most of those guys are my age and older, and you're not seeing their kids stick around, mm -hmm. but their kids would stick around if they saw a profit margin there. Is the USDA and, part of the problem? No, it's, it's really us. We haven't seen it as a main focus and we haven't dealt with it. Uh, USDA, uh, their standards for meat inspection, for example, are not as high as ours are. So we've passed that a couple of years yeah. ago. So we have a, a much better process, but again, we don't process enough meat here to make a difference. Mm. If we would, if we would just process all the meat that we eat for the population we have in South Dakota, uh, average of 53 to 58 pounds of beef per person per year in the United States. And if we would just process enough to feed our 900,000 people here, you'd be processing over 100,000 head of cattle every year just to eat within the state. Hmm. And we don't even get near that. That's so crazy. we've let all these, well, and another example with grains, do you think that we could probably figure out how to make a Cheerio right here in South Dakota? <laughs> Well, they make them over in the Quad Cities. Yeah, It's over in Iowa. They, they can do it there. We could probably do it here, too. So we just need to take a hard look at some of those things. There's a lot of reason, a lot of natural resources here that we're neglecting. So all right, speak, got a lot, of work, speaking a lot of, of work to do. Speaking of green, you just threw my mind there. Uh, what are your, what's your position on the Ukraine scenario? Well, they're the breadbasket of that uh, part of the world and, and all across the world. I think there's so much uh, conflicting information about whether the Ukraine was doing what they were supposed to do. You have to question why in the world didn't they join NATO a long time ago? Why have they been precariously positioned there without uh, you know, reaching out in years gone by? But then you also have the possibility that Putin is a deranged, maniacal leader and just decided to attack a neighboring country to try to get them back into what would become the Soviet bloc again. And should the US you know, government be shipping the cash and military supplies over that we are? I think that uh, we should have been paying attention to first things first here. And had we had a strong foreign policy, well defined, that would not have happened. And so right now, sending things over, I think it probably should be. Uh, benevolent aid through organizations as opposed to the United States, because every dollar that we send out of this country is federal debt. And we've not been protecting our own borders, much less protecting the Ukrainian borders. And you see those tragedies over there and it's awful, but you also see what's happening right here in the United States when you've got the cartels that are running roughshod over reservations and over the, you know, the drug use and consumption in the United States. You got a significant problem here, and, and if you'd add up the number of deaths, you'd probably find that we have as many deaths from drugs that are uh, illegally brought across the border as you're going to see over in Ukraine with the massive slaughter over there. Hmm. A lot of things we need to give attention to, but 
you need to get the policies out there and you got to figure out what's fact and what's fiction, especially with the Ukrainian situation. Yeah. That's, that's not very well defined. So how do you think it's going to go in, on the seventh? <clears throat> you, you well, people, well, I'm always optimistic. <laughs> always, you know, and people, if, uh, when I speak to a group of people, when I leave, I figure 75% are going to vote for me because they understand, okay, this guy is willing to talk about what actually happens behind the scenes. He understands the facts and figures associated with every agency, and he's not in it for himself. Because I could enjoy going fishing or hunting without doing this. But I also have the eight kids, uh, eight in-laws, the 22 grandkids, and I care about them. My dad served in the World War II, and it's, I told the governor this story once. She was pushing a bill for increasing pheasant habitat. The idea wasn't bad, but the practice was wrong. The process was going to be that she gave a million dollars to a private 501c3 to do as they chose with it. And I, I said to the governor, the reason I'm opposing this bill is because of this. I said when I was in about eighth grade, my dad and I were heading out to the field to put up hay. And I remember exactly where I was when my dad said, can you believe it? Now they want to pay us not to farm. And I said, that meant an awful lot coming from a man who'd fought his way through a bloody war in the Philippines and Japan, and he didn't come back here for a better form of socialism. Mm. And that's all these bills are. When you're favoring some special interest, you've got a campaign donor like the, the Genesee Railroad out from Fort Pier to Rapid City. Well, they contributed to the governor's campaign pretty heavily. And then they got $20 million back, too. So you follow the money in Pier and in Washington, but follow the money and you'll be disgusted. And we've got a lot of work to do to try to tighten our belts and do what we're supposed to be doing. And uh, these types of programs need to stop. It needs to be the public needs to see what's going on. And uh, we need to be responsible with taxpayer dollars. It feels like the train's out of the ship or out, out of the yard already. How do you pull it back in? Just expose it to the public. Uh, the public would be repulsed by what uh, goes on in some of these different areas. The state does have responsibility for a variety of things, you know, corrections and courts and mm -hmm. some roads and all those types of things. But restrain that and start shifting it back to so especially social services shifted back to the yeah. churches and the community organizations and the families. And that those, those opportunities are out there. There are good organizations, good uh, individuals out there that are ready, willing, and able to help, but you have to have political will to do it. Yeah. And so when you talk about the election, you know, my, uh, my sad recognition of the governor's response when I announced that I was going to run against her, her campaign's response was, well, we have $10 million. Mm. Okay, well, tell me what you've done. Don't tell me you've got $10 million. Tell me what you've done. And I would be glad to tell anybody what I've done over these past eight years in serving the state legislature. And I'd love to be able to show people what I can do for the next four years serving the governor's office and actually exposing some things that go on and fixing the things that need to be fixed. Well, Steve, I... Appreciate your time greatly. You're very welcome. I'd be glad to do it anytime. So just let me know. I will do it. And I want the other thing that's really nice is dealing with you directly has been great. 
So yeah, well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> we, we try to be uh, upfront and personal as much as possible. That's wonderful. SteveHowgard.com. Uh, if you and, have any. And Dakota, DakotaTruth.com too. This is the interview. Thanks for hanging out with us for the last little bit of time. Thanks, Steve, for giving up so much of your day so we could have this chat about the issues. SteveHowgard.com. you want to help support the show, don't forget you can do it at whymillbank.com or theinterviewpodcast.org. Click on the Donate Today button and choose the value you got out of the show. Send it back to us so we can continue these chats with people around the state and country and the world, actually. Thanks for hanging out with us. Hope you have a great day. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks a lot. <laughs>